this is the Baileys. Bring on those 2022 goals. Live your best adventurous life with Wild Earth, supporter of this podcast. And meet your training objectives with handcrafted training tools made specifically for climbers by Awesome Woodies, another proud supporter of the Bay List. This is the Bay List. Hey, I'm Nicole Groves. Happy New Year's Eve. I am not usually a last minute kind of person, but here we are on December 31st. I really wanted to sneak in one last episode before we tick over into the new year. I had a bit of a hiatus in November and I didn't want to leave you hanging for too long. The bail list has been running for a year now, which is unbelievable to me. I'm so appreciative of your support. I honestly cannot believe how many people are listening and hopefully learning from this podcast. And I want to say a special thank you to those who've come on and shared their stories. It takes a whole lot of courage to be open and honest about the lessons that you've learned, especially if you've gone through something challenging or even traumatic, and especially when someone's shoving a microphone in your face. So to show my appreciation, I've put together some highlights from the 2021 season of The Bail List, which has featured monster whippers, bad jokes, mostly from me, and a surprising number of people shitting their pants. Enjoy. This is just too dangerous. It's, it's not it's easy just... to look into the fear. Like, you know, you, you're virtually kind of looking at death in the eyes and saying, yeah, I'm going to accept the risk to... I'm, I'm willing to roll the dice on this one. Mm. So what made you go back? I just really wanted to do it and get it done. I just... I knew... I knew we could do it. And the desire to succeed was so big inside me that I just couldn't let it go and I get like that sometimes sometimes I'm fine and I can just let things go and let it sit and you know that's fine but this one because I've been associated with the climb since 2000 you know so 18 years of association going to that climb I just I just wanted to do it really badly you know I think too we spent a lot of time talking with each other about what happened what Mm. could happen Mm. You know, how can we improve what needs to happen to yeah. do it? And, and because we'd been to halfway now, it was kind of like, oh, in our mind, it was like, well, that's halfway. Yeah, we know what we're up against halfway. We can easily streamline yeah. the process. It'll be smoother. Yep. Yep. Then it's only halfway to go again. So it was almost like the bottom half was the cruxes in terms of that one of the pitches down lower is the crux. And so there are some hard ones up higher, but it felt like mentally you were more than halfway so we could do mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. I think that we were honest with each other about our fears and our insecurities about a lot of things and that just really helped. You know, Duncan was like, oh, yeah, okay, I can totally understand. What about if we did this? Or how about if we do this? And vice versa. So we mixed up our techniques as well. And the thing is too, what we always do is we work. We always, we're a team. So it's not about who's leading and who's seconding. It's who's on, who, who's on at that point in time. 
So if it's not if I'm not on my game, it's his turn. It's it's he's on his game. So we work on our strengths, and don't worry about our weaknesses because we will have weaknesses when you're on something enormous. You will have weaknesses at some point in time during that journey, and you've got to work on each other's strengths and let that person take the lead because they're strong at that particular point in time. And then you take over when it's your turn and you're strong and you're, you're sorted. So that's, and we've learned that a lot on the big mountains that we've done too. There's been quite a few times where like we did the Matterhorn in Switzerland and very much so there were times when Hank had to take the lead. You know, he had the strength, he had the, the, the strong legs and had the go. And then there was other times that, you know, I could come through and really do it as well. So you learn, you learn to work as a team because your end goal is the summit, or doing the big wall, or doing whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, you can't put your ego before the team. I think that's what I'm trying to say. So we we really talked about that a lot. So when we headed back for the, the thankfully last time. Um, we were really focused as a team and we were really looking out for each other's mental state as well too. That was a really big thing. We were quite happy to read the situation and to just keep call working. Call it as it was. Yeah, call it as it was. Now, we on that time, so once again, we went down Saturday morning. Once again, we went up on the first four pitches and set everything all up. And then we obviously went to bed early and woke up at 3.30 in the morning and we went for it. Now... We didn't, we didn't um, have fun and jokes the whole way up that wall. It was really difficult and really hard. There was some, we had to be really honest with each other at times and we had to swap leads and do all sorts of things to just get through to the top. Um, and the first half went really well because we knew it and we knew what we're up against. But the second half we didn't know And the second half was the deterioration of the rock was so much, it was so significant and it was very challenging. But because we'd made all those great decisions on each other and looking out for each other and really, you know, having those honest conversations with each other and saying, well, I'm not up for this, I am, go. And we got through to the top. Mm. And we did it. There's probably a couple of times, other than the huge runouts and the fall potential. One of the ones was that time when I was leading on the pitch and it was pretty much no gear for 15 metres. It was pretty easy climbing, probably on an 18 or something like that, but when it's run out, it feels way harder. And there was this small hole in the rock and it looked like an Eskimo had cut through the ice and Duncan knew that I was going for that for protection, but at the same time, all my gear was touching the rock and it was just making this dull thud noise, which meant that the whole sheet of rock that I was climbing on was completely detached or loose from the main wall. And Duncan's like, don't put it in, don't put it in. You'll, if you fall, you'll rip the whole block off and kill us all. And, you know, I was just like, at that point I could hear what he was saying, but I was so nervous mm. about falling that I slipped the cam in and it was hollow. It just like kind of flaked a bit and I was just like, well, I'll just leave it there. It probably will fall off and, and kept climbing. And a few metres later, it, the slab met the head wall and I could actually put my hands around the slab or the edge of that rock and just get them right in. It was only like two inches of rock or an inch of rock. And 
I remember clipping the bolt on the head wall and just thinking, holy Jesus, that was insane. And then, yeah, Dunk came up pale-faced and pretty white after that one. And um, the other one that really stands out in my mind is the pitch you were leading on and the the old abseil line was oh, in the way yes. and I just went to go and flick it flick out, it of, out his of his way. way and it caught on the edge of flake of rock and the shield-sized rock as, detached. As big as an esky detached you wouldn't think about it but it was so weird like it was in the way and and hank's just flicking it and it was on this it looked big and then all of a sudden just let go and it must have been just sitting there and it was as big as an esky and it came straight down towards me and thankfully because there was a slab in front of me um it smashed about made contact with the slab three meters just above me and splintered because the rock is so bad it spun it into a million pieces. I've still got three dents in my helmet from it. Um, this that's second helmet. You've You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Doug, yeah. Not, uh, look, I obviously don't have anywhere near as much experience as you. I don't want to tell you how to live your life, but you might want to retire that helmet, maybe. So you were on Belay. Yes, and so I was, was on Belay. And Doug was watching from... The way I describe it... Doug was sitting where you would want to sit if you knew this incident was going to occur. <laughs> yeah, like kind of tucked away inside what we thought was pretty sheltered, you know, away a fair bit, just laying down. I believe he was talking to his mum on the phone. And um, yeah, Graham had got, I'd say he was probably 20 metres up before we get into the crux, into the rooflet. And um, look, he was, he was pretty run out. And about to hit the crux. Um, so I, you know, when I think about it, I'm not sure. I'm sure Graham's thought about this a lot. Um, I don't know whether he'd missed a few placements in that run out. Um, because to me, there's no way you would have made or even attempted this crux in the rooflet without putting some extra gear in before attempting it. Because he was already probably you know, three metres run out, I'd say. Um, Can you explain the nature of, like, where he is on the climb and what the crux sort of entails? Yeah, so the crux, if you imagine this, you're stemming across this big open book feature with the crack in the middle of it. And then as you get to the top of this feature, you've got a little rooflet that comes out. Um, And to the left of it is the... uh, magic block and then this little rooflet and you have to kind of come out like traverse slightly right and come out over the rooflet and then it slabs out a little bit more and f- for the finish uh, but the crux was super tricky like from my point of view from the bottom it looked really hard and none of you had ever climbed this route before had no, you no none of us climbed it um and um yeah you know it kind of makes me think obviously maybe if uh Graham had climbed for a bit longer, maybe there would have been bits, you know, I guess more placements as he went, but look, he was pretty good with his placements and he, you know, wanted to keep himself safe, but he was pretty run out and he needed to put some gear in. So, um, two cams into the side of the magic block, there's a gap there between the block and the wall and um why did he put two in was it because he thought he might fall yeah 
Yeah, we thought it was definitely a possibility that it was going to fall. Um, and I reassured him, I said, if you fall, I've got you on belay, you know, because um, I've caught many of these falls before. And so he put two cams in there, pretty decent size. I just forgot the number, but the red and yellow, I believe. Yeah, he's placed these two in there, put them on a sling and clipped into them. And I must admit, as soon as he put those two in, I had a real sigh of relief because he was quite run out. And I was concerned that he would attempt the crux without any more gear, which would have been dangerous in itself. Um, so yeah, two cams in there and Graham's word were, you know, it's solid, it's sweet. Where, where did he put the cams in the magic block? Was it uh, in between, the Between the, so kind of the magic block comes out on an angle from the rock um, and some of it's like probably um, five centimetre, three to five centimetre gap from the wall. Um, so he put it between the main wall and the, and the magic block. Um, the two in there pretty solid and then um, from there it was a decent traverse right to this little rooflet and then climbing the little overhanging rooflet um, so yeah he started to traverse out it was looking pretty tricky and quite sport sporty yeah like uh, yeah like overhung sport climbing type thing I couldn't see many holes up there and so yeah, he was coming out over the, the little rooflet and, um, you know, I encouraged him to go for it. He was confident, keen as to go for it. I said, go for it, man, I've got you. Um, so he went for a bit of a, um, a reach and I think just slapped and missed and just came down for the fall. Um, as he came down for the fall, I braced myself to catch it like any other fall um, on an ATC as you do on trad climb. Um, and yeah, so as he came down, he took a decent fall just from where he was to then load up those two cams in the magic block. Once those two cams had taken his weight, they had busted out of the magic block, both of them, with quite an almighty explosion, actually. Um, there's a lot of force that goes into a human body falling and then the pressure of these cams coming out of the wall just busted out like a gunshot. Um, and then I just remember watching Graham fall, then it's like a sequence of thoughts, really. Um, and when you look back to it, obviously it all kind of comes back in slow motion. So a bit of a sequence of him falling, the cams loading and for a split second thinking it's okay and then those cams popping and thinking okay now there's going to be a really decent whip so I need to properly um, drop back and put all my weight into the system because the momentum of his fall is going to bring me quite a way towards the wall because I was a fair way down the embankment. Um, so yeah I leaned right back or practically fell back to be able to uh, take the weight but within another you know, half a second of the cams popping out the whole magic block ended up dislodging from the wall and the magic block I don't know if we think about it I've looked back at a few photos and talked about it with people but I would say it would be pretty close to a metre by metre by metre which, That's a big bit of rock. 
Yeah, it's a pretty huge rock. It's a big, solid, square bit of rock, not broken into bits. The whole block came out by itself, just standalone, big uh, block. And I think they're saying concrete, a metre by a metre by a metre is, is a tonne. But I don't know if this thing was a tonne, but it was a pretty solid piece of rock. Would it look like a tonne when it was coming it down definitely at definitely look like a tonne. Um, so I guess these... This, these next few moments are pretty hard to remember. I just have a few glimpses of what occurred. Um, uh, so I look up and see that now the rock is coming down um, pretty much directly to me. Um, and Graham is uh, falling. I'm still concerned about Graham because I haven't quite caught his fall yet. Um, and the rock's coming down. If you imagine... The rock and Graham are falling at the same time, but Graham's lower than the rock, yeah? He's beating the rock to the ground. The rock is falling towards the ledge that Graham started to climb on. Um, and I'm a fair way back, so, you know, not in a safe spot by any means, but if you think about it, if I was down the crag, it, down the embankment, the rock would probably shatter and roll down and I might bits of rock um, but the insane force of Graham's fall on me catching um, I have both hands on the tail rope and just held on and really you know when someone falls what I think would have been probably an 18 metre fall uh, free fall the last I'd seen of him falling he was upside down um, and then I felt the weight and that was probably three metres from the ground when I'd felt the weight. But when I'd felt the weight, I'd then been yanked by all of that pressure in towards that ledge. And so Graham has done a big pendulum swing and hit the wall upside down with the right-hand side of his body really hard. And then I think um, from when... I'd felt that weight and been pulled into the wall that lowered him to the ledge. Um, but pretty much um, the last thing that I do remember seeing was I was now at the ledge and the rock was directly above me. And um, yeah, I guess it's probably the first time in my life where I 100% had zero doubt that I'd be dead, really. Um, the last glimpse of the rock was only a couple, like probably two or three metres above my head and bearing straight down on me. And um, I guess just what you learn through climbing over a long time is that any rock fall, you just try to stick in really tight to the rock. Um, so I just um, closed my eyes and just tucked in really tight to the ledge. Now, the ledge is not overhung at all. ledge is just probably even slightly slab, um, you know, so I didn't think it would do any protection really. Um, so yeah, I just tucked in tight and closed my eyes and honestly did not expect ever to open them. And I actually did have, I remember thinking in a slight thing is please kill me. If this is going to hit me, please kill me because I just had images of how mango, how, you know, how gruesome it could be if you did survive something like that where it actually struck you and it would just be so horrific, you know? 
couldn't think of how bad it so I was like if this is going to happen it's got to kill me I don't want to know anything about God, about that, this that is awful <laughs> I can't imagine thinking that um, I can't imagine and then obviously that. just think like the loved ones or something and close your eyes um, and then just an almighty explosion and I believe I kept my eyes closed it was an almighty explosion like very loud rock shattering and going everywhere like a bomb like honestly like a bomb when this thing hit the ledge so I don't know I, I believe I was just in this tiny little sweet spot on this ledge where I tucked into the ledge the rocket exploded on top of the ledge and just because the rocket hit the ledge before me it must have just shattered into so many parts that by the time all the bits of rocket hit me they were broken into small parts. That's my theory on it. So when the rock exploded, it shattered into a million pieces and also broke away a fair bit of that ledge that I was tucked in away. And all of that rock sent me sliding down the embankment um, with all of the other rock and kind of, you know, just covered in rubble, really. And obviously within a second I was like oh my god like I'm alive they called the PLB the uh, make your mam cry button because uh, as you said before what happens is that when you set off the beacon um, it calls a personal contact for you an emergency contact back home right so if that's your mum she's gonna cry and think that something's gone horribly wrong um, so you know what what does that mean for that person back home though I mean are there things that you should do to kind of prep that person I mean without alarming them about what it means to be your emergency PLB contact? Well, I think um, uh, obviously it's going to be a friend or family member or a partner. Um, certainly, the first thing is to, when you have a beacon, let them know that you have a beacon, you're going away, you're going away for a trip or a bushwalk or rock climbing. Where you're going, um, the information that you, you can um, let them know that they can let us know if uh, anything um, happens where they need uh, assistance or rescue. And obviously, to let them know if they get a phone call from AMSA, Australian Maritime Safety Authority, to chase up uh, a beacon activation. Sometimes the button can be packed, uh, pushed accidentally, sometimes it can't be, or sometimes it's intentional. So it's about uh, 50-50. So um, I would suggest that uh, something may be wrong, but try not to panic. It may be that they're lost, uh, just need getting out of a hard situation. So. Um, try not to worry, but it's a little bit hard if you're a family member, or definitely mum, if mum gets that activation as well. The thing with, with um, Dan, with th throughout the whole warning like saga, we realised that he's so, you've met him, he's so expressive, and he wears his heart on his sleeve, you know? And he, like whenever he you know, trips over or something, he was just like, scream, you know, scream <laughs> out and say an expletive. And yeah, he'll, yeah, he really expresses himself. And at first, at the start of the trip, whenever he tripped over on, on the hiking, because you're constantly tripping over, me and Carl, he'd, he'd, you know, cry out to me and Carl would be like, oh, how are you going? Are you, are you okay? So he thought he's just broken his ankle or something. And then later on, that, at first we we're like, shit, he's broken his leg. And then he's absolutely fine. Like he's just been caught by with some mm. weight a while. 
And then later on, we're like, oh, he stubbed his toe. And he's like, oh, no, it's okay. He's just like <laughs> got a scratch or something. And he's completely fine. He's just, he's a really tough guy. Um, so much determination, but he's just very expressive. Hmm. And then, except on that route. So we, we sort of became numb to to grit to dance you were desensitized sort of yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you're like this doesn't mean anything just like how a parent you know they'll hear their kids cry or scream out and then everyone else will be like that kid just died except the parents like they know instantly they're yeah. okay and then dan on that pitch just lets out this scream and we can't see him at this point and we're like just like a parent that knows their child like <laughs> we know that's a proper scream <laughs> and then we see him like hurtling into view like he comes into the skyline and he's sitting on it. He's like, holy fuck. I just whipped on a sky hook. <laughs> <laughs> and what had happened is that he'd, I think he'd done two sky hook moves in a row. So he'd run out of bolts and then he'd just been right near the top of the slab and he'd done two sky hook moves in a row. And he was quite scared because his last bolt, I think, was a removable bolt that's quite small and not rated very high. And the bolt before that was... What Kyle had these really small aid bolts that just looked like, you know, small piece of jewellery sort of thing. <laughs> and um, so Dan was a bit bit wigged out there. And he did two consecutive hook moves to try to reach the sort of ledge above. Mm. And he left the bottom hook on and clipped it to the rope with a quick draw as if it was a piece. So so for anyone that doesn't know much mm. about aid climbing, a, mm. a, a sky hook that we're talking about is mm. literally just like a um, an, an upside down J essentially of mm. metal that you just place again on like a tiny little ledge or a crimp mm. on the rock. Mm. And essentially all that's keeping it there is your weight on that piece of gear, right? Like yeah. you just stand on it and it just pushes down on oh, the ledge in. or the crimp. Yeah. Um, and then when you move off it, it's essentially just, you know, yeah, m- might stay on or it might not. Yeah, that's it. I'm trying to think of like, uh, oh, it's like a mini grappling hook, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and some hook placements, so you, they come in like a variety of different sizes from really big to really small and different angles on the tips. Um, and some hook placements are super bomber in that just imagine like you've got a small edge and then in the back of the edge there's like a, a crack and yeah. so the hook can seat in that crack and you could you know just sort of put it in there tap it mm. a little bit and it's it's bomber you could probably leave it there as a piece of gear yeah there's an excellent one on the bolt route at kp yeah. where um you kind of hook it over this little edge mm. and so it's it's kind of mm. locked in there right yeah Even if you pull it outwards it's yeah it'll in. stay in the rock mm. will keep it in bomber. that one's bomber yeah yeah so the, apparently the one that dan had wasn't like wasn't like that <laughs> it was just a tiny edge no crack in the back small hook and he just sort of left it there mm. and he doesn't know how it didn't just pop off but so that's what caught him the that's, sky hook that's what caught him. him yeah and then you know you're sitting on this hook and because you know you're taking a whip so it's so easy you know nuts get taken out of weird positions yeah. sometimes with the whip but somehow this hook just stayed and um yeah and then he had to like you know pull up dog up the rope to this little <laughs> sky hook and then continue on <laughs> That is that defies all logic to yeah. me. That's insane it's that far. that stayed on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if it didn't, he would have been okay. It's just yeah. you know, you've got like eighty meters of air at that point, so everything could have popped and he probably would have been alright. But, but he would have taken a screamer, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. And then he made it up to the top.
climbed the uh, the south face of the Washington Column, which is like this classic intro to aid climbing aid route. And we were total aid climbing gumbies, like absolute. We didn't know what we were doing, you know, like terror. I think we, I think we almost killed Alex at one point with the haul bag, uh, with our shit hauling system, and <laughs> like almost released when she was when she was cleaning a pitch. And uh, anyway, it was it was just an epic thing. But uh, to listeners who are unaware of the logistics of wall climbing, um, when you're up on the wall you have to practice, let's say, extreme leave no trace. This is not always the case because, you know, back in the 90s and before in, in the valley, people would just throw their shit literally and figuratively off of LCAP. Um, I mean, people used to um, not only just get rid of their gear, but if they had to uh, relieve themselves, they would do so in a brown paper bag and then chuck it into the bush, you know? Uh, obviously, that's no longer the standard in a national park, uh, and so we had to deal with our waste uh, in a proper manner. And rather than buy um, like a poop tube or something that's you know a little bit more professional, um, Daniel brought along this old, you know, those big jugs that you get whey, like weightlifters, bodybuilders get whey proteined. Sure, yeah. <laughs> that is just hilarious. He, you know, he, probably, he probably weighed like 50 kilos. Just like this little guy, but he always he's taking away protein. <laughs> like I guess he wanted to get bigger. And so we, we brought one of those to deal with our, our waste issue. Um, and then after, after we finished the route, um, you know, we were up there for a few days and we wrapped down and we're walking back to our car and we got a little lost, um, which was just must've been delirium because it was on the valley floor on like sealed roads and things like you don't get lost. But we ended up on the other side of the Awani Lodge to where we wanted to be. We wanted to be over in the car park. So we thought, why not just cut through it? Uh, and at the time there was this probably 150 person wedding going on. And we just happened to walk through, you know, smelling, absolutely atrocious after having been up on the wall for a few days carrying a whey protein bucket full of our own excrement he said where the sacrum is um all your central nervous system passes through the sacrum there's there's four or five holes down each side of the sacrum which is a triangular plate that connects your spine to your hips and it sits just above your tailbone um, they took me into the x-ray room and I remember they had to do the, the um, slide me onto the x-ray bed and I was like I'll just move myself and they were like no 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 like they were like full spinal injury mode like they wouldn't let me move by myself uh, I think I was in a neck brace um, yeah and even though it was more uncomfortable for them to slide me to the x-ray bed they still wouldn't let me do it myself um, yeah so I winced with a bit of pain when they did that anyway I did the x-rays they rolled me on the side x-rayed all around the sacrum um, and then that's when the nurse came in um, and said, look, you fractured between S4 and S5. So the holes are S1, S2, S3, S4, S5. Um, she said, you've cracked between S4 and S5, which is like two sections of holes, and it's a displaced fracture. So the sacrum's broken and gone back into place, thankfully. Um, and she said, look, there's nothing we can do except that that bone will fuse itself back together. Um, and she said, but because those holes are what splits your central nervous system into your right leg and your left leg, 
she said, we want to make sure there's no nerves getting pinched in the fracture. Um, she said, we need to check your rectal function. And so you, you're like, you hear those words, and you're immediately like, oh, please no. And so, so I was laying stomach down, and, and I was like, you don't, like, you don't have to put your finger in my butt, do you? And she's like, no, no, not in, just on. And you just have to, just have to tense your butt. And I was like, oh, okay, that's not so bad. So I'm like, I'm laying there. She's like putting gloves on. I'm like, I'm doing it now. And she's like, no, I have to test it. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. Anyway, so she's like, I, like, I'm in just the hospital gown, no undies on my stomach. And she's like, oh, man, there's a lot of blood here. Um, and I think it was like um, abrasion, like a lot of blood blisters and stuff. Um, and there was a lot of bruising. And, um, yeah, she put, she put a thing. I did the... The, um, the clench test. The clench test, yeah, let's call it that. And uh, she goes, okay, great. Um, I'll get a nurse to take you to the toilet. <laughs> I was like, what for? <laughs> I've already had two confirmations now <laughs> that I have not pooped my pants. And she goes, oh, don't you know that you've shit yourself? <laughs> I was like, and I was seriously angry. I was like, I've asked so many people. Surrounded by liars. Yeah. And now, and then, and she just started freaking out. She's like, oh my God, he doesn't know he's, he's evacuated his bowels. He must have a nervous damage. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like I thought that happened and I asked people and they all told me no. And so she put me into full lockdown. They rang a doctor to operate the MRI machine at Southport Uni Hospital. Got him out of bed, because this was like 10 o'clock at night by this time. Got him out of bed, sent him into the hospital to turn the MRI machine on. They had an ambulance come and pick me up, and then they transferred me to Southport Hospital um, and to do this emergency MRI, <laughs> just because they, <laughs> they think I don't know shit myself. So it was, it was very, uh, very frustrating. So the real takeaway from this story is if your mate has an accident and yeah. poos their pants, you need to tell them. Yeah, do a full on, full frontal check. <laughs> Even if yeah. you think you're being merciful by yeah. not telling them, yeah. make Just sure you're honest know. about it. Yeah. Yeah. So that it's not a big ordeal for the doctors. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And the first conversation, poor Tom. So I get down to the ledge and, and I'm like, you know, oh, mate, you know, are you all right? And gave him a hug and, you know, he's a bit ashen-faced and in pain. And he's like, oh, I think I've broken my elbow. And he said, oh, I think I've shit myself, but I'm going to have to get you to check because it might just be blood or I just don't know. And uh, I was like, all right. <laughs> so I rolled him over and had to, like, peer down his dax. And I was like... Yeah, mate, you shit yourself. <laughs> and and, uh, way, and to make, way to make a bad day even worse. Yeah, eh? I did. I mean, there was he a laughed, lot of to his credit, he laughed in that area as well. Like, it yeah, is, yeah. by the time I got there, it was pretty swollen or yeah, it was pretty full on. So I think we we set about making an anchor down there as well so he wasn't going to go anywhere but we just made it absolutely bomber so there was a good crack right um where tom was he sort of got into a little crevice but we built a good trad anchor he was anchored in nice and short um dale was up in the wind for ages yeah, yeah. oh it was so windy and i just remember looking up at him and he was just in this fetal <laughs> position just shivering and i'm like you just got to stay there just in case we need you to build something up there and um you know because he was really the only anchor like solid anchor we had Mm. Um, for a, quite a while until we sorted it out um, and he was a champ I don't know it might have been 20 or 30 minutes that 
Yeah, he was cold. Like, I remember watching his jacket flapping like crazy in the wind because we were a little bit protected, like a little bit. <clears throat> Still windy, but yeah, Dale was just copping a flogging up there. He was so cold. Because um, this is the thing about all of those or a lot of those sea cliffs in Tassie. I'm just trying to remember where you said it was geographically, but it would be basically it's one what, of those cliffs that's the, the, the first stop after Antarctica, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's in the Roaring Forties and... Yeah, there's no landmass on either side. Like you're actually out mm. away from the mainland. So yeah, it's that, yeah, that cape is. You're right. It's way out in the sea, and it's not getting. There's no windbreak anywhere around yeah. it. It's yeah, it's getting yeah. blasted. Um, I remember it must have been pretty early on. Once you were down, you and I <clears throat> had a quick chat, and we're like, because to reverse the six hour approach we'd done, like, you know, you've done two grade 18 trad climbs. You've got to do another trad climb to get back out. Like you definitely need all four of your limbs working really well to reverse what we'd done. And yeah, even, were... even the traverse like would be no, impossible yeah. with, you know, yeah. broken limbs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we didn't know how bad his injuries were. Like when he's sitting in there and he's gone unconscious and he's saying that his arm and his back and his head hurts. It's like, it's pretty full-on and confronting, you know, seeing your mate just kind of really in a bad way. Yeah, like a, a rudimentary assessment of him, of him chatting to him and then chatting between ourselves was like, he's not, he's not getting out of it. It's just, it's dumb to try and ask him to, you know. Um, so, yeah, I remember us looking at each other and we're kind of like, I think we've got to call a heli. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it was a pretty quick decision taken. And that was the minute where I was just... I mean, I remember when we first said there was an accident, I was just like, you've got to be freaking kidding me. Because I was like, I wonder if we got even rece- um, reception. And then I was like, man, we left the EPIRB back at the bag, which is six hours away. And I was just like, you've got to be shitting me, you know? Like, what are the chances of this happening? And... I remember there was a fleeting moment where there was a boat going around the headland shortly after I got to the ledge, mm. and I seriously could not yell any louder, and I was waving and everything. We were and all, just... we're waving, we had, uh, I had like an orange Gore-Tex, we're all, yeah, we're waving and yelling and going crazy to try and attack, attract the attention of this yacht. Because um, we figured that we might be able to just lower him down to the shelf, and then put him onto the boat and sort of get him out that way because I actually did not expect to get reception um, out there. Um, there was a moment where I was just like, this is going to be so bad. It was just raining sticks and just debris on us. It was. Ins- I was so happy I was wearing my helmet as well. And the kind of the chopper came straight over the top of us about 30 or 40 metres off the ground, the trees were quite high, and and then just hovered there for probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 seconds, and then they pulled away, and they kind of hovered up out in the valley, not too far away, and they sat there for two or three minutes, and I was wondering what they were doing, and we didn't really know, and you can't really, you can barely even talk to the person next to you, even with the chopper that far away, it's so loud, and all of a sudden, they sort of just rolled in, and basically directly over the top of us, and this dude just jumped out of the cargo door and started getting lowered down through the trees. And he was just like a rag doll, just getting smashed in the trees and kind of just going, he got to the ground and he kind of like unbuckled himself and the zip line went back up to the thing. And he ran over to me and was like, kind of like, 
he would grab your head like this and just like yell in your ear and then you'd be like, uh-huh, kind of thing. And you do what he says and he's instructing you and stuff. And he like busted out his little pouch and kind of took out this funny little harness and, and sort of put me in this odd little harness and basically started, started getting me ready to get winched out. And, you know, I was trying to help him the best I could and, and whatnot. And he sort of, it's, it was a weird experience coming from the perspective of a climber who um, you kind of know your rope systems, you know your safety systems, you know kind of what's going on. And so I was looking at him sort of, he put me in this weird kind of tarp-like um, harness. I didn't have to go on a stretcher because I was able to kind of low um, isolate my ankle a little bit and really like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really that bad. It wasn't stretcher worthy. So he put me in this harness and kind of like brought together all these little um, rings or points and just clipped them all together just with a single like straight gate. And I was looking at this and I was like, whoa, this... I mean, I'm sure this is bomber, but you know, and I, I saw this my safety on my harness, and I was almost, I was almost inclined to just take my safety off my harness and just like clip it to this muscle point as well. Just because gotta have that backup. Well, because initially he was like the poor bloke. He had like his big gloves on, and he's kind of like under stress because the chopper is hovering above us and everything. And he drops one of the um, he dropped one of the clips, clipping everything together for me. And so the the underneath like that came up through my legs wasn't even clipped. It kind of fell down to ground. And then he went off and did other things. And I was like, holy shit. Like, does he realize that he hasn't clipped this underneath my thing? So I kind of like picked it up and I was holding it there and I didn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden he saw it and he like, kind of like took it out of my hand, re-clipped it and he was kind of fumbling around this big carabiner and his gloves, whatever. And then it ended up being absolutely fine. And, and then we, we, we got winched out and that was a, that was a hectic experience as well. Cause I was so pumped full of adrenaline and, I couldn't believe what was happening basically at the time we were getting winched out and he was sort of over the top of me kind of thing, kind of like shielding me and we would, we were just getting smashed into these trees and there were sticks and stuff and branches coming down on us. And finally, once we sort of busted out through the, through the canopy, the chopper was still like a ways above the canopy. You can't, you didn't really like realize how high it was. That was a bit of a surreal experience, and I kind of looked up briefly and looking around and he just like grabbed my head and just pushed it straight back in my chest. He's like, keep your head down. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get winched up into the cabin and you're, you're sitting in the cabin there and there's all these dudes around you kind of looking at you and you're, you're flying away from Mount Barney. You're kind of looking out the window and there's Mount Barney just disappearing in the background and you've got like, you're looking at Mount Lindsay there and, you know, the scenic rims eventually slowly disappearing behind you and it was, that was pretty crazy. Were you trying to figure out where the line was as you were flying I was, away? I was, I was looking at <laughs> us and I was like... All the good guys get really good at down climbing and get really good at bailing. It's like learn to fail, get better at failing. If you're going to solo, be really good at failing before you fail. It's like, day I'm not on or I'm not feeling it, high gravity day, whatever it is. But it's okay to bail and start. Just start really easy. Just start and know if it's your nature or not. Maybe it's not your nature, you know? It's like... No one's really... In the end, it's only bloody rock climbing. Like, let's not take it too seriously. It's something that's really important to me. Sometimes we take the wrong things seriously. Take your nature seriously. Take what you're here to do seriously. Take who you're really here to be, how you're here to express yourself, how you're here to express yourself on the rock. 
But don't take it too seriously that you have to do that climb. Do you? I think that's really good advice. Um, Mm. And what about the other thing that I'm curious about is any advice you might have to somebody who wants to talk someone out of soloing? Do you think you can talk a friend out of soloing if you're worried about them, Mm. you know, climbing a particular route that you don't think is kind of optimal to be Mm. soloed because of rock quality or whatever it might be? Yeah. What do you think about that? I think know the person, know who they are, and you can, you know, bring awareness to it. Like, bring awareness to them. Do they have awareness around it? You can always try things, like, see how it goes. One of the techniques I use in my work is all based around feedback. You can suggest anything and then you can watch feedback. So feedback is if someone's like fully not going to listen to you, you can try. Maybe you need to try. Maybe that's important. But if there's a full-blown no, like I'm not listening to you, okay. And if there's a yes, I hear you. Good for you. You've done what you need to do. And maybe there's an edge to what we call edge feedback where it's like the opposite to that is someone said you say to somebody would you like to come out climbing and they're like no way I'm not climbing but there's all this energy and it's like actually this is the person to encourage yeah come out and have a go know the person there are people that you're not going to talk out of or you know know you do you have to share that you know is it important for you is it important for them if you have more awareness Maybe it is important that you bring that awareness to them. May not help. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Mm. Uh, Like I said before, I think one of the things that's really apparent about you is that you have a really good kind of sense of risk and your personal limitations. Mm. How's that kind of changed for you over your period of your life i mean obviously you're saying you kind of used to solo with wild abandon when you were young Mm. now you're married and you've got three kids Mm. how does that change the way that you approach the risk the inevitable risks of of rock climbing it was funny there was a mentality in me in my youth that it was like my commitment i was almost wanted to give my life like climbing was everything and there was a part of me that says Um, if I die giving myself to this so be it and that's really changed and in saying that if I go out one weekend and I do die climbing it's okay it's like I'd be a little pissed because I've still got stuff to do but it's okay as well because I take full responsibility and I think that's one of the things you have to take responsibility who am I what do I want to do and but that's changed because there's things that I want to do other than just rock climbing. That was kind of the test. That was going to be, if she can get her shoe on um, and it's not too uncomfortable and it feels really supported, then like she might be able to hobble her way out. If she can't get a hiking shoe on, if it's too painful, we're going to have to strap it. And then it's going to be a different conversation. Like we're going to have to work out if we could do it together, if we're going to have to call someone in Brizzy to come and help um, or what. Because, you know, 
um, she's not a very big person. Like she's only a little bit taller and a little bit bigger than me, but like I'm quite a small person. You're a very small person. <laughs> I when, to- <laughs> when you told me this story initially and you said you piggybacked her out, I, because I don't know Rochelle, so yeah. I was just picturing someone <laughs> as tall as me, like just <laughs> completely smothering you on your back, which uh, I understand wasn't the case, but it still blows my mind that you I mean, yeah, carry I like- her. <laughs> I, I'm one of those people that's like, I can do it, you know, like, <laughs> I'm fine. Um, but yeah, if it was anyone not her, like I'm trying to think most of my climbing partners are a lot bigger than me and it would have been different if it was with one of them for sure. Um, like our, our plan wouldn't have worked <laughs> at all. But um, yeah, so she got some food into her because um, we hadn't uh, eaten lunch. I think it was about th- – uh, I think it was about 4.30 by that point because um, I think the rocket hit about 3.30. It took us about an hour to wrap down. Right. Um, so you sort of were probably conscious that it was going to get we dark We were thinking well, about that too, yeah. Because this so, is midwinter. Yeah, yeah. It was actually like reasonably close to getting dark. So we were like, right, we need to like, you know. Figure it out. Yeah, yeah. figure it out pretty damn quick. So we were like talking about it on the way down. And I remember the first thing I did when we got down after – um, checking that she could get a shoe in and, and that she, and after she had some food, um, oh yeah, she had some Nurofen as well. We were like, I right, get some painkillers, we'll get it going. Um, I just like messaged my housemate, Catherine, who's also a climber. And I was like, Hey, this is what's happening. Like, just to let you know where we figured out, a, like we figured out a way we're going to get out, but just like be aware so that, you know, we can call it, it just, monitor like monitor the phone I'm gonna put my phone on airplane mode now just like save battery but yeah just keep an eye and she like replied to the text and was like okay hope you're like doing okay I'll just like keep an eye on it so we we kind of had this backup plan if all else failed we would you know call her and she'd organize a rescue team of people to come and help us out (laughs) but um we're like right we can do this ourselves um so yeah, I um packed up all the gear while she was like having her food and um we found a couple of sticks cuz she was like, right, I think I can actually like she kind of put a little bit of pressure on the front of her foot. She's like, okay, I can probably put a little bit on. I could probably hobble my way out. So, um yeah, we found some like big sticks and um and she tested it out and she was fine. It was like some, you know, bush bush um Bush crutches. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's a funny thing. She didn't want to give them up when they gave her real crutches at the hospital. She's like, can I use my bush ones? <laughs> um, she felt like such a badass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, so we were like, all right, she was going to just start after she ate some food. Um, and then because I really couldn't help her much for that first until she got down to the fire trail. Um, all I could do was clear the way, really, mm-hmm. and – um pick her up if she fell over <laughs> like you know there wasn't much else it's quite a like if you ever get there you'll see you're like oh okay especially the last bit where there's the barbed wire fence on one side like you wouldn't want to be slipping over and both falling onto that like yeah it wasn't very ideal so yeah the plan was she was gonna get as far as she could while I packed up all the gear ran it back to the car ran back and then the plan was that I like once we got to the fire truck I was gonna pee back her out um as much as I could like this it's a little bit up and down so um probably like the really steep down bits she'd try and walk because we didn't really want to both fall over <laughs> but um yeah so yeah I packed up the gear and she started on her way and um I kind of cleared the way a little bit for her when we got to the um tree as much as I could like just broke you know some branches that are in the way but yeah she told me that the way she did that was just um she'd like put her crutches on one side 
just like sit on it and then kind of tumble over and then like pick herself back up and keep going. (laughs) The beach whale classic. Yeah, the problem was the tree was like the branches were the thing over the past. So it was like such a pain in the butt. So she fell on the branches basically. Yeah, she she was just kind of like, she was just wailing it the whole way. I'm like, what you got to do? You got to do. Got to, got to. (laughs) So yeah, I I hoofed it out, went back to the car, um, just like grabbed a few things. I think... um, yeah, just like kept a few things in a little backpack if we needed it and um, ran back. And by the time, it was perfect timing. I got there, like cooeyed out and I heard her cooey back and she was like five minutes away. It was Amazing. so good. I know. It was, it just gotten dark by that point. So I saw a little head torch coming down. I was like, yes, she's coming. <laughs> We're like, we can actually do this. That um, is a good uh, little life lesson right there. Always yeah. carry a head torch because Always. the one time you don't pack it is the one time you'll be out late. I get the sense that this experience, your first attempt at climbing Denali, was a bit of a crystallising moment for you in realising that it's not all about reaching the summit. It's not all about Mm. ticking that box. Is that a fair assessment? It's definitely fair. I mean, it's like, again, if I can put this into like a sport climbing perspective people often say half jokingly but it's actually true they're like if you're not falling you're not climbing hard enough yeah so if you're not trying hard routes and you're not falling off them and you're climbing everything you get on then what are you doing you know are you getting any stronger or are you just climbing things you know you can climb so this might seem like an extrapolation of that to be like in a alpine sense or in a even in a like macro like my climbing journey sense you know like which is you know it's quite a long journey um then you know that failure is me pushing my limits and being either told this thing's way outside your limit back it off or this thing's just at the cusp you know and that's where you should be going because that's where the adventure is, you know. You don't want everything to be assured success and you don't want everything to be an assured failure. You want that that bleeding edge, you know, of like where the impossible and the possible are just like, you know, kissing kind of thing because that's where the magic is. So um, I think that that's what it taught me, that whole experience, is that you – that's where adventure is, is that that, you know – is in the in the margins of possible and impossible and it also taught me that from every failure you need to you need to not only accept that it happens but you actually have to embrace it and think to yourself well this even though it's not my ideal outcome is a is a good outcome because the only bad outcome is you didn't learn anything so saying to yourself okay what did i learn you know using that failure to um, fuel your growth and to turn you into a better person, a better climber, a better whatever it is. You know, it applies to any sport. It's not just climbing or any really pursuit in, in human endeavour, you know. One of the key skills, I think, in any adventure climbing, and you sort of touched on this earlier, but I think it is underrated, is the ability to express 
when you're not comfortable or when you think something is, you know, past the limits of what you can do. For example, Bill wanting to push for the summit and you saying, I'm not going to be able to do that within the window of time that we have. So how do you develop that skill? Because I think it is a skill, firstly, knowing what that limit is and secondly, being able to articulate it to others in a way that you feel comfortable without pissing anyone off. Sure. Well, I mean, that's, I guess, one of the beautiful things about climbing is that it demands a lot of skills and a lot of those skills are transferable and applicable to real life, you know? So it's not this standalone thing that doesn't make sense, you know, in the context of your real life. And that, that basically what you're talking about there or the question you're asking is like, how do you have emotional intelligence, you know? And how do you have interpersonal skills, you know? And you can only get those things by developing them and by practicing them just like anything else, you know? So I had done a heap of like expedition, not necessarily mountaineering, but expedition life, really. It's like I, before the climbing, I was in the army, you know? So I was used to living in the field with, you know, a small team of men, generally men, and living in close quarters and having to, you know, obviously the dynamic in a, in a military environment is very different to how it is in a climbing environment, but there are some similarities there, you know. So I was used to living outside and I was used to living with a group of people and having to, you know, make that tribe work, you know, for lack of a better word. So... I guess I just extended that into my expeditions and whether that was mountaineering or hiking or whatever it is, a lot of the expeditions I did were quite long. Um, you know, some two weeks like minimum, but generally up to three or four or five weeks, you know, a lot of times. So learning to live with someone in quite um, demanding circumstances, you know, is, is, is an art. And it's not something you do well straight away. It's something you have to work on. And I think that's why, um, that's one of the things I like about that sort of style of climbing. And it is one of the things that people miss. Like when people ask me about mountaineering and about expeditioning and stuff like that, and they maybe perhaps don't get it if they are a sport climber or a boulder or, or even just like a single pitch kind of like around here, like a trad climber who goes to frog. Um, they're, it's hard to explain unless you've been there. And I just think that unless you're willing to embrace some of those different aspects of climbing and and what those can can bring you're kind of missing out on some of the richness that climbing actually can offer you because there is a lot more to it than you know doing sick heel hooks and stuff like that you know so although those are very cool Andrew got to the top and realised that I had been belaying him on not a Munter Hitch, basically. Oh, cool. yeah, so just two wraps around the carabiner for a bit of friction. It was really just two wraps around the carabiner. Yeah. Nicole went, uh, seems good. I climbed up, got there. You know, at the end of a, a pitch, you go, ah, oh, that was pretty pretty comfortable. And you look up and you go, I'm, I'm not on belay. Yeah. I, okay, so I knew part of the way, like, as I was belaying uh-huh. him, I was like, that is not right. But 
he was off the ground. Yeah, you're committed. And it was quite an easy route. So I was like 99% sure that he wasn't going to fall. I didn't want to say anything uh-huh. because I feel like that's way worse. Yeah. And so I was just like the whole time mentally preparing myself for like how badly he was going to roast me when he got to the oh. top. <laughs> He's gotten into he's gotten into ultra marathons at the moment, so um, that's weird, but cool. And you, he, Ryan, you can't just come on this podcast and slam every sport that isn't climbing. Hey, do we have a moment to talk about slackwiding? Because I'm gonna <laughs> fucking shit all over. Um, Got into climbing about around forty years ago. Um, I have that old. Yeah. Sadly. <laughs> no comments from the peanut gallery. <laughs> I locked eyes with it right as the rope went through it, and you just you can feel the rope. I don't know if you've ever seen a rope go through a grigri under load, but it shoots into the air, like like slingshots into the air. And I just I looked at her, and I went, uh-oh, <laughs> and just dropped. When, you know, you know that you've saved someone? Is it like in the movies where everyone gets up and is like, whoa? Or is everyone just like another day at the office? No, it's probably not like uh, Houston where the Rockets are successful and they're all giving each other high fives. Yeah, if the Rockets wasn't there, it just would have been a huge whip, but it would have been... Yeah, Sick. Would have been cool. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, suppose, it yeah, it would have been like that huge whip that you took on Barney that one time. Off it would have been like, yeah! Exactly, but it's not like that. <laughs> can, can I just say to anyone who's listening that I'm not reckless and careless, it's just that I spend a lot of time doing rad stuff, apparently, yeah. and, and the numbers are unfortunately stacked against you when you participate in so much... <laughs> activity yeah odds are you're gonna have an epic at some point if you're pushing the boundaries yep. yeah i don't want to i i don't want to create any misconceptions <laughs> no, otherwise you'll have no climbing partners yeah, yeah. short well that was a good time Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Bail List, as well as all the other podcast episodes that have been released this year. I've had so much fun creating this show. I've learned a lot from everybody who's contributed by sharing their stories. I really hope that you have as well. Thank you so much to everybody who's reached out and shared your comments and feedback. That's really helped me to make this show better and better right throughout the year. And I am now searching for stories for 2022. So, if you or someone you know has one to share, please get in touch at The Bail List on Facebook or Instagram and follow The Bail List on the socials as well. Thank you so, so much to Wild Earth and Awesome Woodies for supporting The Bail List. Please go and follow them at their socials at Wild Earth Australia at Awesome Woodies. I wish you all an adventurous, exciting and in all ways rad 2022. I'll be back at you with more fails, bales and epics real soon.